At any rate, we're going to turn to a higher thing today, and we're going to take a look at the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. When we were together last week, you'll recall that we had talked about Stephen's great address and the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the history of the church. It was a rather lengthy section, pretty much the whole chapter. And uh, to some degree, I think we sort of bit off more than we could chew. But the bottom line is this, is that we see persecution intensifying in the life of the church. And uh, this young man, he is a deacon of the early church. We recall that the deacons were chosen to free up the apostles to do the things that they were called to do, namely to preach and to teach the word. And the deacons were basically responsible for doing all of those other things, what we would call pastoral care. But they weren't confined exclusively to pastoral care. Uh, We do notice that they did other things. And one of these early deacons, this man Stephen, was evidently a great witness, a great preacher as well. And he was preaching, and he runs afoul of the Jewish religious leaders, one Jewish religious leader in particular. And um, they began to bring charges against him, not formal charges, but they began to charge him with proclaiming a message that was really not consistent with the Jewish faith. And Stephen answers that by basically giving a long sermon. And in that sermon, he basically says, he basically recounts the whole history of Israel. He talks about the calling of Abraham, and he talks about Moses, and he works the whole way through until he gets to Jesus Christ. And basically what he says is that to reject Jesus Christ is to reject God's promised Messiah, and it is to do exactly what the people's forebears have been doing all along. He said this was nothing new. Uh, In the past, your forebears rejected Abraham. In the past, they rejected Moses prior to the Exodus, following the Exodus. He said this was typical to reject God's messengers and God's prophets. He said, but to do this, to reject this Jesus, is to reject the greatest one. Not the greatest prophet, but actually God's own son. Now, you can talk about a person, but you better not talk about their family. And you certainly don't talk about their forebears. You Charlestonians understand that very well. And that really got the people angry. And we're told that they ground their teeth and they rushed upon Stephen, and they began to stone him. And they were pretty much whipped into a frenzy to do this terrible act because of a man by the name of Saul. In fact, we're told they laid their cloaks at the feet of this man named Saul, who we, of course, know to be the Apostle Paul. This is prior to his conversion. And they stoned Stephen there in that public space, and he became the first Christian martyr. And as we pick up the narrative today, what we're going to find is that that persecution erupted into an even greater persecution. The people's blood was up, and what had happened to Stephen soon begins to happen to others as well. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, today to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to go ahead and read through uh, basically uh, the first eight verses, and then we'll come back, and then we'll read through verses nine and following. So, as you know, Stephen is being stoned. He dies there. Uh, He dies, incidentally, praying for his persecutors. He prays for them in the same way that Jesus prayed for his persecutors from the cross. In fact, the words are almost identical. Uh, Do not hold this sin against them, or Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then we're told at this, he 
fell asleep, which is simply a, a very nice way of saying that he passed away. He died. And chapter 8 begins, and Saul approved of his execution. Saul was basically his Hebrew name. Paul is the name that he will adopt. It's the Greek version of that name. And Saul approved to his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Uh, the death of Stephen was something that must have shocked the early church. You know, when persecution arises, it generally shocks us. But while it shocked the early church, it should not have surprised the early church. And we need to remember this as well. There will, become, there will come times, indeed I think that they are already appearing in, in greater and greater frequency in our own day, in which Christians will be persecuted. Now, having grown up, most of us, in a nominally Christian environment, we are shocked by that sort of thing. But we should not be surprised. And I imagine that the early church was rather shocked by the death of Stephen. If for no other reason than up to this point, the only persecution that had been brought against the church had been brought against who? Well, no, against the apostles. We've seen that. They, they had arrested the apostles, Peter and John, for example, when they preached in the temple courts and dragged them before the authorities, and they had beaten them on one occasion. They had strictly warned them not to preach anymore in that name. But that persecution had been confined pretty much to the leadership not to the second tier. But now we're beginning to see that that persecution is beginning to spread. In fact, we're told that the people took action against Stephen in large measure because they were afraid to take action against the apostles because with one segment of the society, at least, the apostles were so popular. Well, sometimes you'll see this in the culture. People are afraid to go after the leadership, but they'll go after the followers. And I rather suspect that this was shocking because, as I said, there had been persecution up to this point, there had been threats, there had been imprisonment, there had even been beatings, but this is the first time that there is actually death. And they were shocked, I'm sure. But as I said, they should not have been surprised. Why should they not have been surprised? Well, take a look at Matthew chapter 24. These are the words of Jesus. Some of the final words of Jesus, incidentally, prior to his crucifixion. And this is what Jesus was saying to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. It's sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus said, they will deliver you up to tribulation. And they will put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So Jesus had warned his disciples that this was something that was going to happen. And that's why I said they were no doubt 
shocked because they had not encountered that kind of intensified persecution, but they should not have been surprised. And here's something for us to remember. You and I, in our day and age, are going to face persecution. We should not be surprised by that. Jesus' invitation to his disciples was, take up your cross and follow me. In fact, he said, those who are not prepared to take up their cross and follow me are not worthy of me. So we need to realize there's going to be difficulty in the world. There's a price to be paid for being a follower, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as Americans, as I said, we tend to be rather shocked by that. But while we can be shocked, that initial reaction is somewhat stunning. We should not be surprised. We should not be surprised in the least. This is the sort of thing that we should expect. So we see this persecution intensifying in the life of the church. It's moving beyond the leadership. And the main threat to Christianity in the first century was really twofold. One of the main threats against Christianity in those early days were the Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities. They are the ones who are very upset. The Apostle Paul, we're told, was a Pharisee prior to his, his conversion. That meant that he was one of the, the experts in the law. He was officially trained. He was licensed to preach and to teach. Now, what's interesting is that the early Christians, at least those Christians in and around Jerusalem here, we're going to see that the gospel message is going to go beyond that. In fulfillment of Jesus' great commission, it's going to go beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. In fact, that's the second part of this chapter. But initially, at least, the gospel was confined pretty much to Jerusalem, wasn't it? And every single one of the apostles was a what? A Jew. So what you see is that the persecution is coming from within. At this point, these early Christians, and they weren't even called Christians at this point, that wouldn't happen until they get to Antioch, they simply regard themselves as Jews who recognize that the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah has come. So the first persecution that they face is coming from within. And you know, sometimes that happens in the life of the church. We're seeing that in our own days as the church begins to move in a more secular direction, as it begins to sell out its own birthright. We're beginning to see that oftentimes for the faithful, the persecution comes from the very place we would least expect it. From within. And that's what was happening here. The main threat to the church in these early days was from within. It was from the Jewish authorities. Not necessarily from the Jewish people per se, but from the Jewish authorities. Now, it was common people, of course, who attacked Stephen and killed him, but they were instigated by whom? By one of the leaders. So the Jewish authorities. The other major threat, and we're going to see this as we continue to progress through the book of Acts, is going to be the Roman Empire. So you're going to have a threat from within, and you're going to have a threat from without. Now, why was the Roman Empire upset about the Christian faith? Well, we know why the Jewish people were. It's because they're out there proclaiming a Messiah. Stephen had said, the very one that you have crucified. Peter had said the same thing. The very one that you crucified is the one by which this man has been healed. In other words, he was laying the blood of Jesus on their heads, and they were upset about that, in spite of the fact that at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, they had cried out, may his blood be upon us and upon our children. 
It's one thing to say that to yourself. It's another thing to have somebody else say that to you and call you guilty. But it wasn't just the Jewish authorities. The Romans were upset. Why were the Romans upset? For something that we don't think is all that controversial. In those early days, the Christians were going out, and the gospel... Now, I, I want to I emphasize something here. When we think of the proclamation of the gospel, the good news, we people who are heirs of the Reformation tradition, and, and believe me, I, I am reformed in my theology, and I am thankful for the Reformation tradition, but we tend to think that the gospel is what Martin Luther talked about, that we're simul ustus et peccator, we're justified and sinners, that we have been saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man may boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But actually, the earliest Christian proclamation was not justification by grace through faith. That would not have been controversial in the Roman world of the first century. Romans probably would have scratched their heads and said, what in the world are you talking about? The earliest Christian proclamation was the proclamation, Jesus is Lord. There is a new sheriff in town. A new king has arrived. And that's what got people anxious. Isn't that what got King Herod anxious? When the Magi came from the east and they said, we have come to see the king of the Jews, Herod immediately was filled with anxiety. His blood ran cold. What do you mean, king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. What, what king are you talking about? The newborn king of the Jews. When he heard there was a new king in town, what did he do? He slaughtered all of those innocent children of Bethlehem. The earliest Christian proclamation was that there is a new king. To proclaim Jesus as Lord meant that Caesar was not. And in that kind of a culture, to say that there was an absolute Lord and Caesar was not it, that was serious business. You recall that that's ultimately what got Jesus crucified. Pontius Pilate examined Jesus. He found that Jesus had not broken any Roman laws. He was prepared to release him. In fact, he went through that whole mockery of going out and washing his hands and saying, I find no fault with this man. And what did the people respond? They said, this man claims to be a king. Ah, oh, but we have no king but Caesar. And the minute that Pontius Pilate heard that, he realized he was in trouble. He realized at that point, he was backed into a corner. He had no choice but to get rid of Jesus because his job was to uphold what? The primacy of Caesar. And that was the charge that ultimately got Jesus condemned to death. And incidentally, when Jesus was crucified, what was the placard over his head? The king of the Jews. <laughs> That's what Pontius Pilate wanted to know. The people are saying, you're a king. Are you a king? And Jesus said, you have said so. And when they decided to put that placard over Jesus' head, the Jewish authorities came and said, do not put king of the Jews over his head. Say this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And what did Pilate say? What I have written, I have written. That's what Jesus claimed. When John the Baptist appeared on the scene, he proclaimed a message of what? Repentance. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come. Jesus was a king. That was the message that was being proclaimed, and it got those early Christians in trouble. That was the main threat in the first century. A threat from within, Jewish religious leaders, a threat from without, the Roman Empire. Well, we are facing threats as Christians in the 21st century. What are our threats? Well, you can see them on the screen. 
I think our main threats, particularly in Western culture, is secularism. What is secularism? This is my simple definition of secularism. A secular worldview is the view that says, this world, this life, is all there is. This is the only world that matters. So you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, because guess what? Tomorrow you die. He who dies with the most toys wins. This is it. It's all there is. And isn't that what our world teaches? And that's why we hold so tenaciously to this life. Because we really, regardless of what we may profess, many people, even many people within the church, tend to act and believe that this life is really all there is. That's a secular worldview. So you've got to amass, you've got to have it all, you've got to pack it into these 70, 80, 90, 100 years, because this is all there is. That's a secular worldview, and it is pervasive in American and Western culture today. The second threat, and I think this is a real threat, is radical Islam in our day. It's radical Islam. And one feeds into the other. And I'll tell you why one feeds into the other. When you have a secular worldview, when God is pushed out of the picture, and you basically say that this world is all there is, there is no moral foundation. The Roman Empire, regardless of what you may have heard, if you really read the history of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire did not fall from pressure from without. It rotted morally and spiritually from the inside, like a giant oak tree. Oak trees oftentimes rot from the inside, don't they? And then when they fall over, we say, what caused that? What well, was a wind? No, it wasn't. If you look, the whole tree's hollow from the inside. That's why the wind was able to knock it over. That's what happened to the ancient Roman Empire. It got spread so thin, and it became so corrupt morally and spiritually. Even the Roman senators acknowledged that to a large degree. That when they were invaded from the outside, there was no power to resist. And it just fell over. I think we're seeing that happening in Western culture today. There is a moral and a spiritual vacuum in Western culture. We are rotting away from the inside. And the main pressure that is coming against Western culture from the outside in the midst of this moral and spiritual vacuum is Islam. Now, why is Islam the main threat here? I'm going to tell you why Islam is the main threat. There are only two religions in the world that are missionary religions. Only two religions in the world that are missionary religions that have a mandate to go out into the world and make disciples. And those two religions are what? Christianity and Islam. Not Judaism. The charge to the ancient Jews was come out from among them and be ye separate. Be different. Now, if somebody went into Judaism, and we're going to talk about the Ethiopian eunuch very shortly, if somebody went into Judaism and became a Judaizer, somebody who was interested in the Jewish religion, a God-feared, they could convert. But the Jews never went out seeking converts. You came to them and you could convert, like Naaman the Syrian in the Old Testament. But they didn't go looking for them. That wasn't part of their mandate. They were supposed to be separate from the other nations of the earth. 
Buddhism doesn't have any kind of a missionary mandate. Hinduism doesn't have any kind of a missionary mandate. There are only two religions that have that. Christianity and Judaism. They both have a charge to go out and make disciples. Oh, excuse me, Islam. Those two religions have the responsibility of going out and doing it. Now, here's the difference between them. Christianity has a mandate to go out and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The mandate is by peaceful means. That's one of the most remarkable things about the Christian story, is that the Christians managed to permeate the Roman Empire and in the short span of about 300 years, in an age before the Internet, in an age before you know, tweeting and twittering and all that sort of thing, they managed to permeate the entire Roman Empire, which was trying to stamp them out, and they managed to bring it to its knees. There's no success story like that in the history of the world. But they did it all without firing a shot. By peaceful means. Now, Islam has a missionary mandate to go out and make disciples. But here's the difference. It's by peaceful means, if possible. It's by any means, if necessary. In other words, everybody out there is an unbeliever. And your job is not merely to convert them, but to subdue them. That's what the word means. Submission. And so, the early church needed to understand what it was up against in order to be an effective witness. You and I as Christians in the 21st century need to understand what we are up against in order to be effective witnesses. Now what I've just said to you is not politically correct. I don't care. It's not about being politically correct. It's about the truth. It's about the truth of the gospel and acknowledging that and recognizing that and realizing what we're up against. Now, if we are going to be facing great persecution and our mandate is to convert the world by peaceful means, what is that going to entail? It's going to entail love. It's also going to entail suffering. It's going to entail suffering and persecution and a willingness, if necessary, to give up our lives for the sake of Him who gave up our, His life for us. Conscious of the fact that what? The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. So that's what we are facing. And that's why I've said to you, the book of Acts is such a wonderful book because it is not just a record of past events. It's not just a record of what happened 2,000 years ago. It is a blueprint for ministry today. What they were facing is remarkably similar and akin to what we are facing. And those are the two th twin threats that we are facing today. Now, as the early church was facing these twin threats, its most obvious enemy, the greatest practitioner of its misery in these early days, was this man, Saul of Tarsus. Now, what do we know about this man who was a Jewish religious leader whipping the people into a frenzy. There's a lot that we can say about Saul, but I'm going to hold most of what I'm going to say about him until we get to the ninth chapter of Acts and his conversion. But he's a remarkable figure. But at the very least, we know this much about him. He's Jewish. He's Jewish. We know that he's a Pharisee. Something else interesting about him, though, he was also a Roman citizen. 
In fact, he was the only one of the apostles that we know of who was actually a Roman citizen. Now, how did you become a Roman citizen in those days? They were all, let me tell you the distinction, they were all Roman subjects. Everybody subject to Rome in those days. But subjects had no rights except those rights that the Romans decided to give to them. Paul was a citizen. Now, citizens of the Roman Empire had certain rights and privileges that nobody else had. There are people who live here as immigrants, legal and illegal immigrants. They don't have the same rights as citizens. That was true in the ancient world as well. Paul did have citizenship and there would be certain rights. Incidentally, those rights would help him later on down the road when he is converted and he becomes a missionary. But just for starters today, just, just keep in the back of your mind that he's a Jew, he's a Pharisee, and he is a Roman citizen. Something else you might want to say about him is that he's zealous. He is zealous. He is not milk toast. he is not lukewarm about his religion. He is a fanatic. And let's face it, if there's anything that makes us leery today, I'm going to say this in a sermon in a couple of weeks, if there's anything that makes us leery in this day and age, it's fanaticism, isn't it? Particularly religious fanaticism. Well, let me tell you, Paul was a fanatic. You say, well, how do you know he was a fanatic? Well, let's read through these verses again, and you'll understand why I say he is a fanatic. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But, here's the critical verse, verse 3, Saul was what? Ravaging the church. He was ravaging the church. Anybody out there reading from the New International Version of the Bible? Read that text for me and listen carefully. Anybody? Okay, so the NIV says, began to destroy the church, which makes it sound as though he's just sort of starting to stir up trouble. But actually the Greek is in the imperfect tense which doesn't mean that he started, it means he continued to do it. He didn't just start to stir up trouble, he stirred up trouble and he kept on stirring up trouble. He ravaged the church and he did it continually. Now, I want to say something about fanaticism here for just a moment. Not all fanaticism is bad. Not all religious fanaticism is bad. I mean, let's be honest. I'll bet right now, looking out over some of you, you're fanatics. You are. How many of you this past Monday were all in? How many of you? Show your hands, you fanatics. We do. We get, fanatic about, we get fanatical about football, don't we? We, we want to talk about it. We went into staff meeting on Tuesday and nobody wanted to talk about anything except Clemson. Well, yeah, some people wanted to, you know, go climb in a hole about Alabama. Incidentally, I'll tell you a story about that. My former assistant at St. Helena's, I heard that he was preaching. He's a huge Alabama fan. And I called him up the day before and I said, now, Matt, I know you're preaching. And I know that the text 
for tomorrow is the Lord's baptism. So I'm, I'm just making a, a connection here. Water, big game on Monday, don't say roll tide. <laughs> and he must have said it, they said about four times over the course of the sermon. Well, he's eating crow now. He's a fanatic. We get fanatical about things we can't talk. Grandchildren. Oh, some of you are fanatics about your grandchildren. You want to show people all about your grandchildren. Show them all the pictures. I once heard a preacher say, when you pull out those pictures, there's one of those cartoon bubbles above the person's head that says, I do not care about your grandchildren. We're fanatical about those things, aren't we? So it's not necessarily that all forms of fanaticism are bad. But some can be very dangerous. It depends upon what you are fanatical about. And Paul, is clear, was fanatical for the traditions of his ancestors. For what he perceived as being the faith. He's going to become fanatical eventually for Jesus Christ. And that's going to make all the difference in the world. But a lot of it has to do with what you are fanatical about. And this man was fanatical about the traditions of his ancestors to the point where he was willing to whip people into a frenzy and put innocent men and women to death. Now you look at this and it's just tragic. Devout men buried Stephen and great lamentation was over him. And Saul was ravishing the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, if the story ended there, you'd say, oh my goodness, this is terrible. But Jesus did say what? The gates of hell would never prevail against the church. And the resurrection is the proof of that. They crucified Jesus. They laid him in a borrowed tomb. They thought that was the end of the story, and it wasn't. I probably have told you in the past, over the course of the first century, there were over 100, over 100 messianic movements that will arise on the scene in ancient Palestine. Now that's an average of one a year. How did the Romans deal with them? They knew how to deal with that sort of thing. You cut off the head and the body eventually dies. And that's what they did with every single one of the messianic movements. Anytime a Messiah appeared on the scene and wanted to lead a revolt, they simply seized the Messiah and killed him, normally in a very public and painful manner. And the result is that the movement would die. The only messianic movement of the first century in which they actually killed the Messiah and the movement continued to grow and to prosper, and as I said, over the course of the next three centuries, bring the empire to its knees, was the Jesus movement. <laughs> and why was that? Because they killed the Messiah and he came back. The resurrection is the proof of that, you see. And that's why the next few verses are so important. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I love this portion of the chapter. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw that the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. This is what I call a Romans 8.28 scenario. Anybody know what Romans 8.28 says? Martha, what does it say?
That's my favorite verse in the Bible. Everybody has a favorite verse. That's my favorite verse. For we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. That's one of those life verses. I don't know if you've ever been in the habit of memorizing Scripture, but I encourage you to do so. Encourage your children and your grandchildren to memorize Scripture. Hide God's Word in their hearts, because in times of difficulty and privation, those words can be a saving grace to you. That's a great one to hold on to, that no matter what you're going through, because you are called, because you are loved by God and you love Him, all things will work together for good. And that's exactly what we see happening here. So this great persecution erupts against the church in those days, and the Christians are scattered. Now, you might think to yourself, that's tragic, because up to this point, the church has been together. They're holding all things in common. Nobody is in any need. Wow, that's a wonderful picture, isn't it? And now they're being scattered. What a tragedy. But it's not a tragedy. The word scattered here is a very interesting one. Uh, Greek, as you've heard me say before, is a very rich language. There are four different words in Greek that when they're translated into English are all translated as our word love, for example. Well, there are different words in Greek for scattered. They can be translated into English as scattered, two of them in particular. One of them means to scatter in the, ter- in the sense of being lost, uh, like scattering somebody's ashes on the sea. And then they're carried away, and they're, they're lost, what, forever. But there is another word, scattered. And it's generally used to describe somebody who is a sower. Remember Jesus' parable of the sower? That he went out and he scattered seed. The word means to be scattered and planted. And that's the Greek word that is being used here. So the church is scattered, but as they're scattering, God is doing what? He's in the process of planting. Isn't that marvelous? Here these people are, trying to stamp out the Christian faith, and it's scattering, and they're looking at it from a human perspective and thinking to themselves, ah, success! But actually what God is doing is using that as the means by which He is going to plant the gospel message and the gospel hope throughout the world. That's what's happening here. It's It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Jezreel. Now, those of you who are coming with me in the spring to the Holy Land are going to have an opportunity to stand on Mount Carmel and look out over the Jezreel Valley, sometimes called the Valley of Armageddon because it's the same valley in which you can find Megiddo. The Jezreel Valley. That word Jezreel means scattered and planted. God was scattering his people, but he was scattering them for the purpose of planting them. I want you to understand that when persecution arises and comes against the church and we wonder what in the world God is doing, you can always rest assured that he is working out his purposes, working out his plans in your life and in the life of all the things that we're going through. Again, the light never shines so, dark, so brightly as in the darkness. We, we must never forget that as Christian people. I've said to you before, if you go out with a flashlight in the middle of a day like, like today, even one of those really high-powered mag lights and turn it on, you're not going to see anything. But turn that thing on in the darkness, and it will split the night. 
It will guide you home. So as much as we may hate persecution, it really gives us an opportunity to shine. To shine as witnesses. And that's what we see here happening. They are scattering, but they are being planted. And that's where we pick up here. And there was this man, Philip, who was scattered, one of the early deacons, and he did what? He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So even in the midst of this persecution, God is working out his purposes. And one of his purposes, and he had said this at the beginning of the book of Acts, was what? That the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. He said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem. That is where they were living. But then he said where? To Judea and Samaria. And finally what? To the ends of the earth. We're seeing that prophecy of Jesus being fulfilled right here as a consequence of that persecution. God working out his purposes and his plans. God knew how it was going to work. They had already been witnesses in Jerusalem, and up to this point we can see a fair segment of the population has embraced the gospel. The church is over 5,000 people at this point. That's wonderful. What can 5,000 people do in one small community? My goodness, they can transform a community. Twelve disciples transformed the world. But it wasn't just that Jesus was going to be the king of the Jews alone. He was going to be the king of the world. And so as a result of this persecution, these believers are scattered, but they're also being planted. And one of them is being planted here in Samaria. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. And Philip is one of the first. Now, let me tell you, to go to Samaria, as someone like Philip did, a Jew, was serious business. Uh, there was risk involved in this. On the screen I say it's a courageous thing to do. And why is that? Well, part of it has to do with history here. Um, these people had a long memory. If you go to the Middle East, they have a long memory. <laughs> when we think about such things as the Crusades, we think of those as ancient history, don't we? Not in the Middle East. The Crusades, as far as they're concerned, happened yesterday. <laughs> uh, that's something we really don't understand. Well, Charlestonians understand that, I think. South Carolinians understand that. When we talk about the war, what do we talk about? Well, generally, we're not talking about World War II in Charleston, are we? We're talking about the late unpleasantness, the war of northern aggression. It's almost as though it happened yesterday. When I first moved to Charleston back in the early 90s, um, I, I noticed that Charlestonians measured time differently than everybody else in those days. Everything was measured in terms of before Hugo and after Hugo. See, we, we have long memories. They had long memories in those days, and Jews in particular had long memories. They didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans were hated. In fact, if a Jew had to travel from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, they had to go through the center section of Palestine, which was called Samaria. But most Jews, rather than even step foot in Samaritan territory, would take the much longer Transjordan route, much more dangerous, incidentally. Take them at least twice as long to get to their destination as opposed to just going through. And the whole purpose was so that they can avoid Samaria. And having to speak to Samaritan people, they despised them so intensely. In fact, they hated Samaritans more than they hated Gentiles. 
At least the Gentiles were ignorant. The Samaritans, as far as they were concerned, were not. Now, what's the history here? Well, the history went back over 700 years. Think about that, 700 years. When the northern kingdom of Israel was carried off into captivity by the Assyrians, recall that the southern kingdom of Judah was eventually carried off into captivity where? In Babylon. But the northern kingdom was carried off into captivity where? In Assyria. And when they were carried off into Assyria, of course, they didn't round up everybody. There were a few people that were left behind, a few Jews. And what did those Jews do? Well, they intermarried with the people that the Assyrians then supplanted in the land. When they conquered an area and carried these people off into exile, they brought their own people in and repopulated it. And some of the Jews that were left in that land, we're told, intermarried with the Assyrians, which was prohibited in the Old Testament. It was prohibited in the Old Testament. And then, to add insult to injury, they erected their own temple, which was specifically prohibited. There was only one place you were supposed to worship in the temple, and that was in Jerusalem. So how did they get around all of this? Well, they got around all of this by doing a third thing. They rejected the whole Old Testament except for the first five books. <laughs> so pure-blooded Jews, the Syrians were a people who had collaborated with the enemy, and they had corrupted the faith, and they had ruined the scriptures. They were half-breeds, and they were hated. And who is it that Philip goes to take the gospel to? These hated, half-breed, despised people. Now, that really shouldn't have shocked anybody, because isn't that what Jesus did? He encountered a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman at the well, But this was a fulfillment of Jesus' great plan. And so that's what happens here. Philip goes out, and he is an evangelist. Incidentally, this is just a little bit of trivia, Philip is the only person in the New Testament described as an evangelist. He's the only one in the New Testament that gets that title, evangelist. He's an evangelist, and he's also something else. He is a miracle worker. So God is blessing him in the same way that God had blessed the apostles, and great works are being done. I want to say something about being an evangelist here. There are some clergy, some preachers, for example, who are evangelists. Uh, one of my dear friends, John Guest, is a great evangelist. If you were here when he preached my institution, that's just John's gift. He's an evangelist. I want you to understand something, though. That is not the primary job of a parish clergyman. Now, that's not to say that he can't be an evangelist, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't do evangelism. But I think if you read through the New Testament, it becomes very clear that being an evangelist is primarily, listen to this, primarily a layman's job. What's the job, then, of the parish clergy? If they're not to evangelize, now, sometimes they're engaged in evangelism. Yes, they have to preach an evangelistic sermon from time to time. They may even run into somebody on the street, seize them in a collar, and ask them a question, and they have the opportunity to share the gospel. But what is the primary responsibility of the parish clergy? I think the Apostle Paul lays it out for us in Ephesians chapter 4. So just turn there for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 4. 
And Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as one, you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Paul is talking about what? Calling. And he's urging his listeners, he's urging his readers to be true to their calling. And then he says this in verses 11 and following. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now the apostles and the prophets. Who are the apostles? Well, we know who they are. Who are the heirs of the apostolic tradition today? At least for Anglicans. Who are they? Well, we would say the bishops. They're, they're in that apostolic succession. That, that's at least what we would say. Some were called to be prophets. Well, what are prophets? Well, they're preachers. Just another word for preacher, prophets. The evangelists, and then the shepherds and the teachers. So Paul separates them out, which is not to say that the parish clergyman doesn't do all of those things from time to time. I've always said the parish clergyman is the last of the general practitioners. But that's not the primary responsibility of the parish clergyman. What's the primary responsibility? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, my job, and the purpose of these classes and these teachings, is to equip you to fulfill your calling. And some of you are called to be evangelists. Some of you are called to go out and share the gospel. It's interesting to note that the very first people who went beyond Jerusalem to preach the gospel to people who had never heard it were not the apostles. It's, it's not Peter or James or John who've gone to Samaria. To these people who are on the fringe, who's gone there? Philip. Now, Paul will eventually go, but initially, at least, it's Philip, isn't it? When Jesus said, some of you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, and then to Judea and Samaria, the first person that we read about that goes to Samaria is Philip. Not an apostle, but a deacon. He's the first one to go. I want you to understand, that is your job as a layperson. Now, I have a job, too. That job is to, yes, sometimes evangelize people. But my primary job is to equip you, to set you loose, to do the job that you have been given to do. And I know that some of you are evangelists. Now, when I say evangelists, that doesn't mean that you have to stand down there on the street corner and shout out to people. We used to have a group that did that. Uh, a very strict Baptist church down in Beaufort used to do that. They'd stand in front of Lipset's Shoes on Bay Street, and they would preach it was more hectoring than it was preaching, to be perfectly honest with you. And I, I seriously doubt that it had a very profitable response. When we share the faith, we should be able to do that in a winsome and attractive way. People should be drawn to us because there's something in us, a transcendent joy, not a happiness which is contingent on our circumstances, but a transcendent joy that attracts people. Let me tell you something. Jesus must have been a lot of fun. He must have been attractive. If he wasn't attractive, 
thousands of people would not have been drawn to him. There was something about him. I, 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 don't, I don't like pictures of Jesus in artwork, generally speaking. Because they always sort of paint him as sort of weak and effeminate and sort of pusillanimous. But that is not the picture that you find in Scripture. He must have been attractive and exciting. And he told stories in such a way that you were grasped by that. That's us. That's what we, we should do. It. People should find in us an attractiveness in the gospel and a joy. Well, that is exactly what Philip did. And he made a big splash down there. A huge splash, as a matter of fact. People were being converted, and the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth. And that brings us to the strange case of Simon Magus. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9. Now, I've just gone through an awful lot here. Some of you may feel like you've been drinking out of a fire hydrant for a moment. I've got nine minutes to go on, and believe me, I could go on. But let me just pause there and see if there are any questions about anything I've said. Martha. It's the southern kingdom. The Assyrians um, in the northern kingdom were, were led by a, a fellow that I think has the best name in all of history. His name is Tiglath-Pileser. I think it's a great name. Tiglath-Pileser was the king of the Assyrians at this point, and he helped lead the people off into captivity. They attacked Jerusalem after they had taken uh, the northern kingdom, and they had taken Assyria. They attacked Jerusalem, but um, were incapable of actually seizing it, and so they withdrew. So the smaller kingdom, which you know is just two tribes, basically, the southern kingdom, just sort of hangs on for a time. But their religion eventually is corrupted as well. And so all of this is judgment on both the northern and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom holds on for a little bit longer, but eventually the Babylonians come in and take them off as well. Okay. So. One last yes. We are talking about two different people. There is one Philip who is an apostle. This is Philip who is a deacon. They are not the same people. They are not the same people. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Um, uh, <laughs> Well, because the New Testament refers to that. There is Philip who's chosen as apostle. He's listed in the list of the twelve. This is Philip who is called to be a deacon, and we're told that he was one of the Grecian Jews. Remember when there was that division, when there was that, com that complicated argument about when Jesus called people, he didn't call too many. Well, there weren't Grecian Jews that were following him. These were Hebraic Jews. So we know from the New Testament, from the book of Acts and from the Gospels, that they are two distinct people. Yes, diaspora, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to be scattered, that's right. We even refer to the diaspora today. Yeah. 
Philip the Apostle. No, that, that, that's Philip the Evangelist here. So who's the Philip that we're named for? Is that, is that what you want to know? I'll tell you who he was. In the Gospels, just prior, uh, in the Gospel of John, just prior uh, to Jesus' crucifixion, we're told that a group of Greeks came and said, we would see Jesus. I'm going to tell you two things about that that I think are significant. Um, the first is this. Um, in the Gospel of John, you'll find that Jesus keeps saying the same thing over and over again. And the Scripture says this. For example, uh, Jesus would perform a miracle. He'd raise somebody from the dead, and, and then they would say, he would say, don't tell anybody about it. Did you ever hear that? It's called the Messianic Secret. Don't, don't tell anybody about that. And, of course, what did they do? They went and told everybody about it. Um, but the Scripture would keep saying things like, his time had not yet come, or his, the big expression in John is his hour. His hour had not yet come, his hour had not yet come. That is his hour to be revealed. But you get to a point in the Gospel where we're told a group of Greeks who had come to the festival in Jerusalem, they were God-fearers, come up to Philip, the apostle, and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And we're told that Philip took them to Peter and Andrew, and they took them to Jesus. And Jesus says, the hour has come. In other words, the time for me to be revealed, not just as the Messiah to the Jews, but to the Messiah to all people. So there is a sense in which Philip, the apostle, is the first one to give us an example of taking people to Jesus like that. Now, Andrew did that initially when he brought his brother Peter. But that's who Philip is in the Gospels, Philip the Apostle. He brings the Greeks to Jesus. Um, one of the things, let me just say one other thing about that. In many pulpits, and I had it installed at St. Helena's, um, in many pulpits, there's that inscription. Um, and I put it up there in the pulpit at St. Helena's because every time I climbed into the pulpit, it was a reminder of what my job was. And those words from Philip were there. Sir, we would see Jesus. <laughs> now, maybe it's something we need to install in the pulpit here, that whoever climbs into the pulpit there, whoever they are, that's a reminder. What's my job? Your job is that the people should see Jesus. So that's who Philip was. So Philip the Apostle. Yes. Yes. I think that one of the things that as Christians we should be praying for is that, will God, that God will allow us not to be tied to the things of this world. Because one of the things that the Apostle Paul says is he says, remember this, that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. But if you're so fixated on this life, 
that this is all there is, then persecution and all those sorts of things are terrifying to us. Now, to some degree, we are tied to this world because it's all we've ever known. That's why I love my friend Ken Boa's wonderful illustration of womb world. You've heard that illustration before, womb world, he tells. He says, you know, think about it. He says a baby that's in its mother's womb prior to its birth is very happy. It's floating upside down in its mother's amniotic fluid. It can hear its mother's heartbeat. If you were able to ask the baby, do you want to come out? No, I'm very happy where I am. And he says, but the baby was not meant for womb world. If the baby stays too long in its mother's womb, what happens? It dies. And so it has to leave that world, and it has to go into another world. And going into that another world, it's almost like a death, isn't it? You travel through this, this, this thing. It's, it's a painful experience for the mother and, and sometimes even for the baby. I mean, it's a big baby. Sometimes the head comes out, you know, a little squished. I mean, I'll never forget that. It happened to our second child. And I was like, ooh, is his head going to stay like that? And they said, no, it'll, it'll be okay. Um, uh, <laughs> but it's a birth. And, and what's the first thing? It's, it's bright lights and it's people. And in the old days, it, they smacked it. And I mean, what is this? It's cold. Let's go back. But they weren't meant for womb world. But that's the only world the baby had ever known. Never known this greater world. And you know, here we are in this world. This is the only world we've ever known. We think this is great. But let me tell you something. We were not meant for this world. We were not meant to live eternally in this world. And if you get stuck in this world, you die. You need that new birth to be reborn into that even greater life, to become a part of what C.S. Lewis calls that great story. This is just the title page, he says. It's that great story in which each chapter is better than the one before. So God grant us the grace to appreciate what we have, but appreciate it only for the time that we've had it and not cling so tenaciously to it that we forget that it's not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Yes? Isn't that what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse? He said, when you begin to see all these things happening, not one stone left standing upon another, wars and rumors of war. He said, these are but the birth pangs. It's just the beginning. He said, lift up your head. Why? Your redemption is drawing nigh. That's what we have to look forward to. And so one of the prayers we should be praying in our life is, Lord, grant me the grace to allow this world to lose its allure. (laughs) Make me long for that heavenly country where my true inheritance rests. That's, that's what we should be praying for. Yes, one last time. Martha, you get the last word, and then I've got to let these poor people go. Oh, he's not our friend yet. Uh, <laughs>
<laughs> He's anything but our friend at this point. Absolutely. Well, great discussion. Thank you all, ladies and gentlemen. And I've kept you over five minutes, and I apologize for that. Next week when we come back, we're going to take a look um, at Philip and his witness and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, a very familiar story, but also this strange case of this fellow, Simon the Great, Simon Magus. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace a grace that allows us to persevere in the midst of difficult times. We thank you for the example of Philip and those, all those early witnesses, those early evangelists who were scattered as a result of difficulty and privation, persecution and suffering, and yet found themselves planted. And we are here today, Lord, in large measure because of that persecution and that scattering. Grant us the grace to be willing whatever the circumstances, to take our faith with us and to share it with all we meet. Grant us to follow like Philip and become evangelists. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You have the what? I met the Englishman who was supposed to preach. Oh, did you? What's his name? Michael Wright. Yes. I met him at the, uh, and I thought you'd be there at the uh, Anglican. I know. Session. I was just so exhausted after Sunday, not realizing uh, that I was going to have to get up there. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Well, I asked him what he was going to preach, and he told me, and I told him.